The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he is also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Just the same, Father. It's good to see you, as yes, always. Yes, you too. Thank you. Father, we have a couple current events that we wanted to talk about, but uh, perhaps before we get into those, we could work through a few viewer questions uh, via email, if that's okay with you. Certainly. And uh, we had a question pertaining to the recent uh, consecration uh, done by Francis, um, but another email that I wanted to read pertaining to the consecration said, uh, a viewer read that our Lord appeared to Sister Lucia and said that the consecration will be done to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but it will be late. Our Blessed Mother also told the children at Fatima that the consecration will eventually be done and that her Immaculate Heart will triumph. But what happens, Father, if this consecration is performed late? Does it mean that peace will be withheld? <coughs> Well, it is true that at Fatima in July, Our Lady did, did prescribe that the Holy Father, at some point, consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart. And she did say at that time that uh, the consecration would be done, but it would be late. And um, I think the general understanding of that was that the consecration would be done uh, only after the evils that Our Lady forecast had come to pass. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. I mean, the, the, the wars, right? The famines, the persecution of the church, and so on. Uh, Our Lady predicted there'd be a, a, a second war greater than the first. See, that could have been inverted if Pope Pius XI had made that consecration. Uh, as Our Lady asked, problem, the problem seems to have been that Whereas in 1917, Our Lady spoke of the Holy Father, Pius XI, consecrating Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in 1929, when the time came to make the consecration, uh, rather, the, uh, the terms had changed somewhat. And it's very interesting to discuss why it was. But at that time, uh, Pius XI was informed by Lucia that heaven wanted him to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but he had to act in concert with all of the bishops of the world. The Catholic bishops had to unite in this, which would indicate it would be a very a formal and uh, I mean, a ceremonial, not just a consecration uh, that Pope Pius XI would do on his own, but it would involve all, of it, all the episcopate. And as you know, uh, Pope Pius XI never did such a consecration, nor has any such consecration been done, really. I mean, uh, so, um, when, our, when Our Lady said at Fatima in July, uh, July of 1917 that the consecration she spoke of would be done, but it would be late, she was referring to what she had told Lucia about the need for a consecration by the Pope, by Pope Pius XI, understood, or one of his successors, uh, that that consecration would be done, but it would be late. Well, in fact, uh, it is true that individual popes have made that consecration of, well, they made the consecration of the world to Our Lady, um, to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. Uh, Pope Pius XII, notably, during World War II, as you know, in 19, late 1942, consecrated the world and also mentioned Russia not by name, but by description, uh, consecrating them uh, especially also to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And again, there's a lot of, a lot of spe speculation as to why he did not name Russia at that time. 
Um, but the fact is, he did refer to Russia. There's no question. Everyone knew that he was referring to Russia at the time. And uh, Lucia commented on that, that the consecration uh, as done by Pope Pius XII at that time was not the consecration as it was requested by heaven or prescribed by heaven. But she said it nonetheless pleased our Lord. And uh, because of it, the days of World War II would be shortened. Um, so in 1952, as you know, also July, July 7th, actually, the Feast of St. Cyril and Methodius, Pope Pius XII consecrated Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but he did it, and again, uh, you might say motu proprio, it was by an apostolic letter that he personally consecrated. Uh, and when, when he spoke, he spoke officially as the church with the pontifical we, uh, consecrating Russia, the peoples of Russia, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So that consecration was done in 1952 uh, by Pope Pius XII, uh, consecrating Russia to the Immaculate Heart, and that was done by a Roman pontiff. But again, that was not done uh, with all the bishops of the world in concert. Um, so what Our Lady said at Fatima in 1917 came literally true, that the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart by a reigning pontiff would be done, but it would be done late. And so it was. It was done late by Pope Pius XII. <clears throat> but to this date, um, no true Roman pontiff has consecrated Russia, uniquely Russia, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in uh, union with all the bishops of the world. I mean, uh, you know, Francis uh, did something recently. Um, it was uh, on March 25th, uh, 2022. And, uh, you know, of course, there are those who, who insist that he is not, not the pontiff, that he's not the pope. There are some who say <clears throat> that he's not the pope because they're Sede Picantis, and others say that he's not the pope because Benedict XVI never truly resigned. And they're insisting that they're called Benedictus. <laughs> they say that Benedict is still somehow the pope. But, you know, for them then any act done by Francis wouldn't have any canonical authority. Uh, but for the rest, who believe still that Francis really is the Pope, uh, even they are speaking up, like the Fatima Center is saying, what he did was not really the prescribed consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Um, so, you know, the general consensus seems to be that this was not, in any case, no matter what, this was not the consecration requested by Fatima, by Our Lady at Fatima. <clears throat> the Society of St. Pius X has a, has a, a peculiar uh, position on all this because uh, they were behind, uh, fully supportive of this. I think they even issued their own prayer because I guess Francis' prayer wasn't acceptable, and it really wasn't, of course. Um, but somehow they, they managed to get a lot of people pinning their hopes on on this, and uh, a lot of people are disappointed. Uh, but that's what happens when you try to Catholicize modernism and pretend that uh, they can function and speak as Catholics, true Catholics, when they're actually modernists. So uh, I think a lot of people in um, the Society of St. Pius X are, are, are let down by it all after their hopes were somehow built up. But I think a lot of people outside the Society of St. Pius X were very disappointed that the Society of St. Pius X formally backed this. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously they should have warned their own people, but they didn't, that uh, this was highly suspect and don't expect too much to come from it. Because the modernists, well, let's face it, they, they, they do not fulfill the will of God. They, they don't intend to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and, um, you know, they could see this from the track record. John Paul II did a consecration, I think it was back in 84. And again, he consecrated the world. And, uh, but again, I mean, it, it wasn't, the, certainly wasn't the consecration requested by Our Lady at Fatima, mm -hmm. or in 1929, for that matter. Mm -hmm. Father, will um, the request of Our Lady at Fatima, will they ever be fulfilled? Will the correct consecration ever take place? And if that does happen, will we have peace, true peace in the world? <clears throat> well, I mean, that's a good question. I'm really not the one to answer that. Uh, will a valid Catholic Pope, a true Catholic Pope, Vicar of Christ on Earth, 
consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, in union with all of the true Catholic bishops in the world. Um, I, you're familiar with uh, Father Kramer, who wrote the book, uh, The Devil's Last Battle, I think. Um, and uh, some, other, some others who are considered uh, knowledgeable about Fatima, experts on the subject, uh, basically have testified recently that the consecration of Russia will take place as it was requested in 1929 by a true Catholic Pope in union with all the bishops of the world at the height of a war with Russia. And uh, in the midst of uh, the ferocity of that war, then there, this event will take place as prescribed not in 1917, but in 1929, also required the union of the bishops. Well, I'm not sure where they're getting that. They're, if they're going on the basis of their own speculation or their own thoughts, or if they have some kind of reliable testimony on that subject, I don't know. Um, but um, because of the the disarray in the even especially in the Novus Ordo Church, it's it's hard to imagine uh, that actually pulling together with a true Roman Pontiff and a true Catholic bishop speaking for the sake of uh, the Church, militant, uh, the uh, mystical body of Christ on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, something that basically uh, the modernists don't even believe in. Uh, they believe. Well, I mean, look, Tom. What uh, what Our Lady was at, asking for was the conversion of Russia. That's what she said. We would pray for the conversion of Russia, right? And um, modernists don't believe in that. Their idea of conversion is basically what Francis said in his March 25th um, consecration, as he called it. Their idea of conversion is converting to the things of the world. Uh, Stop being mean to each other. Start being ecologically... uh, uh, aware, right? develop a social conscience, and so on. No question of any conversion to any like one true faith. No idea of the Catholic Church as being the one true church and Catholicism as being the one true faith and the one true religion. There's no, no hint of that. Um, so um, th- there is no call for conversion to, to you know, the, a true faith in Christ, and the practice of that faith, that one true religion. Uh, so how is it even possible, if they don't believe in that, to call the world to convert? You know, you see, the, the consecration is done by Pope Pius XII in 1942, as we talked about earlier uh, in previous programs. He actually spoke about the conversion, the conversion to the church, the conversion to the faith. But that's when, you know, popes actually believed in the Catholic faith and when they actually... Uh, adhere to the Catholic Church. They believed it was the one true church uh, established by the one true son of the one true God. Francis says God wills all religions. Basically, they're all essentially religions willed by him. Um, So, you know, why would you call for conversion to the Catholic faith of anyone if all religions basically are positively willed by God? So, you know, I, I just don't see, I just don't see how this, it's going to happen unless there's a mass conversion on the part of Francis and his um, fellow modernist bishops. Yeah. Styles himself the Bishop of Rome, he's abandoned the title of Vicar of Christ, right? And um, so, what's left? Uh, anyway, I don't, I don't see it happening. But I, I do see, definitely, the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Our Lady did say that at Fatima. She said that Roman Pontiff has to consecrate Mary, the, the Russia, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. In fact, look it up, Pope Pius XII, and July 7, 1952. In the Octa Apostolic Cities, anybody can go and look it up. Like we can post it online. Maybe we already did. I, I, I wanted to. Uh, the actual document, the Apostolic Letter of Pius XII, Consecrating all the peoples of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in a most special way. And uh, so what Our Lady asked for at Fatima was actually, I mean, I think to the letter fulfilled in, by what she said in 1917. Obviously not 
in union with all the bishops of the world in, in, a, in an explicit ceremony, worldwide ceremony, mm-hmm. uh, as she requested in 1929. That hasn't been done. But Our Lady did say in 1917 that there would be a Holy Father will consecrate Russia to my Immaculate Heart, but it will be late. There will be a time of peace granted to the world. She did say Russia would be converted also. And uh, so I do expect that that will happen. Uh, perhaps when Father Kramer speaks about this, perhaps his point is that at the height of some war with Russia, Russia will be converted at, at that point. I don't know if he says the consecration, a consecration will take that point. But what Our Lady was saying, Russia, will, the consecration will be done late, Russia will be converted. Perhaps that'll be the, the point. And there will be peace. You know, it's, I'm, I'm somewhat speculating as to what was meant by sure. their forecast or prophecy. Okay. Well, Father, we had another uh, interesting comment that I wanted to get your take on um, from a viewer who wrote in and said that the consecration of Russia was actually not from 1917 and was never even part of the approved message of the apparition by Lady at Fatima. She said that this comes in... Uh, I guess Lucia's fourth memoir, written in 1941, in the middle of World War II, after she had become good friends with the Catholic mystic Alexandrina of Balazar, who first had supposed visions of consecrating the whole world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in 1938. In December of 1938, uh, this Alexandrina of Balazar became friends with Sister Lucy. So this viewer says, I hold the consecration suspect, its private revelation of the lowest standing, it doesn't contradict the faith, but it hasn't been deemed supernatural. You ever heard anything like this, Father? Uh, no, and I, I don't believe it. I mean, the, the individual facts that she, she's talking about, Lucia befriending this Alexander. Italian mystic. Um, I don't know if this Italian mystic has ever been approved by the church, but Lucia evidently befriended, at least they exchanged some letters, I believe. But to say that the, the requirement for the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart appeared only in the fourth statement of Lucia, after she'd become friends with this mystic, and implying that therefore it was this mystic who put this idea in Lucia's mind, and therefore since this mystic was uh, putting ideas in Lucia's mind, the whole uh, uh, revelation, private revelation of Fatima is suspect, of the lowest order, I think that is really a gratuitous reach myself. I think it's based on the flims, flimsiest of, of I mean, talk about talk about mere conjecture. So uh, I don't I, I don't believe it. I don't put any weight on the uh, the conclusion that this person is is giving. Uh, I mean, she's free to believe that if she wishes to. But the church has pronounced on the revelations of Fatima, saying that they are, uh, there's nothing in there contrary to the faith. Uh, they, are, they are credible. They are in accord with the faith, and they are credible and worthy of belief. I think that's the expression the church used. So um, that's as much as the church will say about any private revelation, really. She doesn't make them canonical, and she doesn't make them uh, matter, matters of divine Catholic faith, nothing defined, but she does say these are worthy of belief and, uh, you know, one can piously follow. So, I mean, she wants to say that the church is misleading people by this, this, well, she says the lowest order, but she almost implies some kind of hoax. Um, So, I don't, I don't uh, follow that. I don't agree with that. Okay. You'll have to come up with a lot more evidence. And uh, I don't think that evidence is there. I think it's a matter of pure conjecture on that. Anything else on this uh, topic of the consecration before we move on? And we had a document in front of you, perhaps mention that now or save it for later? Well, I mean, as far as the the consecration done by. uh, done by Francis, again, I was rather disappointed. I mean, there is. Uh, so the fact that the SSPX was uh, all in, as it says here, on the on the false consecration by Francis is, is rather disappointing. 
And uh, I'm afraid that uh, it can be very misleading to the people and, 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 and nourish a false hope in them. And this is, uh, I'm afraid, what you get when you try to pin your hopes, as it were, on the actions of modernists. Mm -hmm. um, doing something truly Catholic. So, um, anyway, I, I think it was uh, highly imprudent and perhaps somewhat dangerous because I think it could, um, I think it could actually shake people's um, confidence. Yeah. Not only, you know, in the SSPX, but even in, uh, in, their, in their faith thinking, well, my goodness, the consecration was supposed to be done. And look, things haven't changed for the better. I mean, you know, the clouds haven't lifted, the sun is not streaming through, and everything is perfect. It's the Garden of Eden again. What happened? We were, we were, we were let down. We were deceived. Or it could affect people badly in thinking that, gee, after all this, we got our hopes up for this, and we're dashed again. <clears throat> and we're constantly being disappointed. And people get, uh, again, discouraged from that point of view. So, again, I, I just think it's a big mistake to... Uh, try to see the Novus Ordo and the modernists behind the Novus Ordo in the, with rose-colored glasses and um, try to kind of impose a certain Catholic veneer over modernism. Because <clears throat> inevitably, that veneer is going to be going to come off. Yeah. People are going to see through the veneer. It's going to be dropped. And, um, you know, they're going to say foiled again. It just... We see this happening with some people. Some people just kind of give up hope uh, because they place all their hope in the wrong places. So yeah. please be careful. Okay. All right. Uh, Father, a, another viewer wrote in and said that I have heard the church must suffer a passion just like the incarnate Christ suffered on earth. But no one ever cites any magisterial teaching on this aside from the Catechism of the Conciliar Church. So, Father, is there any such, uh, any kind of definitive teaching on this matter? Please tell us whatever you can about this topic of the Church suffering a passion just like the incarnate Christ. I don't know if there's any magisterial teaching in the sense that there's any, been a solemn pronouncement of faith. I can find dogma of faith on the subject by, you know, competent ecclesiastical authority. We do have our Lord's words in sacred scripture, uh, when our Lord said to the apostles, if they hated me, they will hate you also. Right? If they persecuted you, me, they will persecute you also. Indicating that uh, they'll be persecuted for their allegiance to our Lord, for their love of him, and uh, their unwavering service to him. Um, so when our Lord spoke these words to the apostles, I think it was pretty well understood that this involved not only the apostles, but their successors and those who would you know, embrace the faith through their testimony, notably their preaching and their martyrdom. Um, so the idea of the church suffering with Christ, there's no doubt about it. <clears throat> I mean, uh, St. Paul talks about filling up in ourselves what is wanting in the sufferings of Christ. We think there's something lacking in the sufferings of our Lord, and that really has to be simply what we are willing to give, that we must give and unite with the sufferings of Christ crucified. Our Lord says that. If you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross every day and follow me. The cross, carrying the cross. So again, we have these indications from our Lord himself that the members of the church must suffer. St. Paul talks about the church being the well, mystical body of Christ, right? So we think of the church as the mystical body of Christ, in a sense, reliving the life of Christ. Um, there are a number, many of the spiritual writers have, have spoken about this. I think some of the fathers, going to back to the very beginning, um, talk about the church suffering, uh, suffering on earth. It's a church militant, it's true. But uh, militancy also requires sacrifice, and sacrifice requires suffering. So we're not saying this is the church, pur uh, this is the church of purgatory, which is called the church suffering. But we're just saying, that the church on earth must suffer also with Christ. And um, <clears throat> there are those who actually have said that the church's history must, in a sense, mirror the life of our Lord with the, let's say, obscure birth <clears throat> and, and even the conception of the church, right? Um, with our Lord and then the obscure birth of the church as our Lord 
was born in obscurity, you might say, and um, <clears throat> then the growth, and um, even the fact that Herod wanted to kill the church, kill our Lord as an infant, so the church went through that in her earliest years as she was being hounded for death, as the apostles were being hounded unto death, right, by the synagogue. <clears throat> and the church then would grow, and there'd be, like our, our Lord himself, would accumulate um, a great, great following, thousands of disciples, right? But then there would be a great persecution, and the church would undergo our Lord's passion, too. So this idea is not new. It's a very old idea in the church. And um, even though it has not been, uh, that I know of, uh, formally pronounced by an ecclesiastical authority as a dogma of faith, it's always there. It's been there in the history of the church. So, And the fact that the church has always countenanced this and actually um, spoken of this concept uh, in her devotional writings might constitute actually a statement of the ordinary magisterium of the church, which is certainly authoritative. But um, the, um, you know, if we, if we think of this, this understanding, we can see and appreciate perhaps what the church is going through now as mirroring, mirroring events in our Lord's own passion. Now, Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, a Dominican theologian, whom you know, and I have to thank you for pointing me in the direction of the book, uh, his book, uh, The Mother of the Savior. You mentioned to me uh, just recently that at the, I think, the closing of that book, mm -hmm. uh, Father Garrigou Lagrange talks about the consecration. <clears throat> so we come back to that, the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart. So this book of Father Gerrit Lagrange, The Mother of the Savior, uh, actually does talk about this in the year 1941. That's the year that this was actually published. So you put yourself back in the 1941. You realize this is the very toward the beginning of World War II, <clears throat> Pope Pius XII's consecration of the world to the Immaculate Heart had not taken place yet. And Father Gary Lagrange was commenting on this. Consecration called for it by Fatima already then. And what he has to say, I think, is very interesting. This is in the edition, um, with, with the copies that you gave me, page 265, it's called Article 5, The Consecration of the Human Race to Mary for the Peace of the World. <clears throat> and... Uh, his comments, Father Gary Lagrange's comments, uh, are very, very interesting, I think, from a theologian's point of view, and truly a Catholic theologian's point of view. He even pointed out the need for those, the people, the Catholic people, to understand the significance of the consecration before it could be done, which is, I think, a very interesting point. I think it's a point that you made, Tom. The reason why I bring this up here, though, is because of what Father Gary Lagrange says toward the very end, in fact, on the last two pages of the book, I think, he talks about the question of the church on earth suffering in parallel with the life of Christ. You probably noticed that, right? Um, and he says this on page 270. As a saintly religious used to say, and this is, he's quoting here, uh, Mère Marie de Jésus, a foundress of the Society of the Daughters of the Heart of Jesus. In her Pensée de la Sévente de Dieu, Mère Marie de Jésus. She says, as a saintly religious used to say, we do not live for ourselves. We must see everything as it is in God's plan. Our present sufferings, even were they to rise to their peak, and were we ourselves to be sacrificed in the disaster, gain and prepare the future assured triumphs of the church. So she, says, she says, by suffering now, we ourselves are, in a sense, laying the groundwork for the future triumph of the church. The church goes thus from struggle to struggle, 
and from victory to victory, each succeeding the other until eternity, which will be the final victory. And then she quotes from the Gospel of St. Luke, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and so to enter into his glory? St. Luke chapter 24, verse 26. The church and souls must go along the same road, she said. The church and souls must go along the same road. The church does not live only for a day. When the martyrs fell like snowflakes in winter, might one not have believed that all was lost? No, their blood was preparing the triumphs of the future. And so, you know, this parallel between the life of our Lord, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, according to this, these must be mirrored in the history of the church itself. Is that, is that actually magisterial teaching? Not necessarily. Um, is it Catholic teaching? It is Catholic. Yes, okay. Because that is the certainly the pious belief of generations and generations, centuries and centuries of Catholic people. Mm-hmm. And it has a good foundation, solid foundation in sacred scripture. Okay, good. Thank you, Father. Uh, a couple more emails. Conservative estimates point to 10 million Orthodox bishops, priests, monks, and female religious murdered by the Bolsheviks for refusing to deny our Lord. Within the scope of schism, do these confessions have any value? So if they suffer death rather than deny Christ mm-hmm. at the hands of the Bolsheviks, well, obviously only God can decide that. Theologically, um, if, if someone is outside the Catholic Church, uh, willingly, knowingly, um, uh, you know, they, if they're guilty, let's say, of obstinate denial of the known truth, truth known to them. That's one of the six sins that cry to heaven for vengeance, you know, for which there can be no forgiven in this world or the next. If they know that, then they certainly could not save their souls by any professed allegiance to anyone, because they would be professing allegiance to Christ at the same time they were denying him by refusing adherence to his church, if they knew that that was the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. If they are ignorant of these things, say, because this is all they ever knew, and um, then it is possible that they could be saved, but they would have to have the virtues of faith and hope and charity. They would have to have, you know, say if they gave their life for Christ, um, then you know, you would assume that the charity, the love of Christ is there. But that is not necessarily so. I mean, there are people who do things uh, because of obstinacy. There, there are people who have actually suffered and died for causes uh, motivated by other reasons than love, uh, just sometimes because they're obstinate. So one cannot assume, just assume, that... Um, they had the perfect love for Christ that is that betokens that is beso- betokened by martyrdom. But can't just assume that <clears throat> if they die outside the church. Um, one thing I think it's important to note, though, that if they if they were adherents to the Orthodox, they're baptized, and the Catholic Church would regard them as validly baptized. Uh, I don't think it's ever been a question about the validity of the <laughs> baptism. Of uh, the Orthodox, because they traditionally have held on, you know, to the to the traditional ceremonies that they've had from the very beginning, back to the times when they were Catholic. <clears throat> so the validity of the baptism is something that is, I think, just understood. Um, so if the question is, could that in fact have uh, been sacrificial, and could it have been? I forget what was the expression. Could it have? Uh, could they have had any value? Could they have had any value in the eyes of God? I mean, I, I don't see any problem with theologically that they did, okay? Whether or not, in fact, they did, only God can know that, what was in their hearts. Because ultimately, Tom, I mean, God gives the grace. But it has to come from God. And only only He can give it and move the soul to 
make heroic sacrifices with him based upon a, a great love for him. Martyrdom usually betokens somebody who is willing to part with everything in the world, mm -hmm. life itself, for Christ, for love of God. Our Lord says, if you lose your, your life, for my sake you will find it. Uh, so we want them to save their souls. We don't want them to be an obstinate denial of the true faith. Okay? We admit the fact that some of them at least could have been uh, adhering to uh, orthodoxy out of, out of just ignorance. Not supine, but what they call invincible ignorance under their circumstances. So that will not be imputed to them mm -hmm. as willful sin. So, you know, we'd like to think the souls are saved by this. Um, we can't just presume that they are, though. Right. Okay. Only God knows. He is their judge. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, another question, Father. We actually have uh, multiple uh, variations of the same question, so perhaps we could address them all simultaneously. But uh, if I could just sum up, Father, um, what... Uh, in the the case of a uh, say a teenager or a, a minor who still lives with their their parents, um, uh, if these parents happen to be novus ordo and they want their child to receive uh, sacraments, whether it be confirmation or uh, even the the Holy Eucharist, so called within the novus ordo church, uh, should these minors, these teenagers, should they go along with their parents' wishes? Should they receive these sacraments in the new church in novus ordo if they personally believe them to be uh, invalid or non-Catholic? Should they go along just to please their parents? Should they resist their parents? What should someone do in this situation? If a 15-year-old is convinced personally that he considers these new rites to be invalid, not valid sacraments, um, then he, he can't go along with it. He simply has to say, look, I can't receive that. I'm, I'm not in the right frame of mind. I believe it would be sinful to receive this for me. And uh, kind of simulating a sacrament, which is a sacrilege, it's sinful. Um, and I just can't do it. And furthermore, I think if he made it known to his, the Novus Ordo priest, even I, I guess where his parents are taking him, made it known to the Novus Ordo bishop who's supposed to be confirming him, I think the Novus Ordo priest and the Novus Ordo bishop would say, you're right, you can't, you can't receive this. In conscience, this would be a, a grave sin for you, a violation of your conscience. So if his parents won't listen to him, he, he should uh, maybe pick up the phone and tell Father McGillicuddy down there at the local Novus Ordo the church where he goes, look, my parents are compelling me to receive a sacrament that I don't really believe in. I don't believe, I believe in the sacrament, but I don't believe that you do. I don't believe that this is a valid sacrament. Um, I tend to think that, I don't even, even think any of the Novus Ordo clergy would, would tell them, be quiet, obey your parents, and just, you know, go against your conscience. Okay. You, you probably don't have as much confidence as I do. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I, I don't think that they would allow him to approach yeah. under those circumstances. Okay. I right. wouldn't think. Okay. But the answer is, whether he should go along with it, the answer is no. Right. And his parents should respect that, too. Okay. All right, very good. Father, when the Jewish people convert to Catholicism, to the true religion, will Jewish assimilation be an evil? Should the Jewish people always remain true to marrying only on their bloodline? Once the majority of Jewish people have converted to Catholicism, will there be two positions in the church, one for Jews and one for Gentiles? Because, Father, this is the belief of the Hebrew Catholic Association. This viewer says that while studying with them online, this position was put forward. Uh, it scared me because it was foreign to my understanding of the faith. This will be a very important to answer. This will be a very important question to answer for the Jewish convert into the Catholic Church. Is Jewish assimilation an evil, Father? Well, no, not if there's a genuine conversion. I mean, the Book of the Apocalypse, sometimes popularly called the Book of Revelation, now, chapter seven, uh, talks about the angels about to strike the earth, and the sea, and the trees, and so. And uh, the word goes out: Do not strike them until God has marked you know, the, the servants with the sign, the sign of the Son of Man. 
And so the angels are sent out to mark them, and we have the list of them. They're from the 12 remaining tribes of Israel, 12,000 of each, 12,000 individual members of each one of those 12 tribes is signed with a sign of, the, of, the, of Christ, basically the Son of Man. And the understanding is that they're signed basically with the sign of the cross, and they're baptized. They're actually, they become Christian. <clears throat> so you have 12,000 uh, signed of 12 tribes. It's 144,000 people. And that would seem to mystically represent also the, the 12 apostles, right? They're called from among the Jews. So, um, I mean, there's a foundation in sacred revelation for this happening. And uh, St. Paul also predicted, you know, the conversion of Jews to Christ, finally. Uh, but those are true Jews, not the, fake, not the false Jews. Uh, those who are actually descended from Abraham and actually have the character of real Jews by their Jewish bloodline from Abraham. And um, so this is not a negative, this is a positive. In fact, we read in some of the commentaries about these end times, about uh, even the coming of the Antichrist, that it is the Jews who will begin by hailing the coming of the Antichrist and then recognize him as the Antichrist and will then resist him under the leadership of Henoch and Elias. And they'll be very strong in their resistance. They'll lead the resistance to the Antichrist, really. So their conversion is, is very important. But uh, as far as the um, marrying in their own bloodline, uh, I don't know, you know, the Catholic Church is very, very strong about this question of Catholics marrying Catholics, such that uh, even marrying a baptized non-Catholic, like a, a Lutheran or a Presbyterian, <clears throat> the Church has an impediment against that. An impediment which would not make it invalid, but would make it illegal, illicit in the Church, but an impediment with the church could lift for a serious reason. Um, obviously, a, a Catholic marrying a non-baptized person, like a Jewish person, well, that is another impediment. That's a Duramed impediment. That would mean that, that such a marriage would be invalid. Could the church actually allow it, though? Under certain circumstances, she could allow it, but she has an impediment there because she realizes there are dangers, there are things that could come from it that were very bad. Um, so her mission is to preserve the faith and to, to protect the faith of her own Catholic children, uh, the members of the church. And that's why these impediments exist, to, to prevent them from being put in a position where they would lose their faith. But the church could, could allow that for very grave reasons, <clears throat> as long as there were certain precautions taken. And so the church is very, very clear about the matter of Catholics marrying Catholics. Uh, marrying within their faith. As far as the Jews marrying within their own bloodline, I mean, I'm sure there are rabbis and uh, other voices that would say that this is the way it should be, but I don't know there's anything actually prescribed by God from that. Um, so, um, we have examples of the Hebrews marrying outside their, outside their um, bloodline in the Old Testament, actually, and some of them are considered great figures uh, by their own their own Hebrew people. So, in divine revelation. <clears throat> so I, I can't necessarily speak to that. But as far as will there be two classes of Catholics? Then the answer is that's impossible. Absolutely not. That's what Saint Paul was fighting against back at the very beginning against the Judaizers, yeah. who tried to regard the Jewish converts as being kind of a, a separate sect, almost like Pharisees among the Catholics, and looking down upon the pagan converts. That's what got St. Peter into trouble with St. Paul, when St. Peter would not eat with the pagan converts. And St. Paul, of all people, former Pharisee, calling Peter out on that, saying he was giving scandal by doing that, implying that there were two classes of Catholics and Christians the Jews and the pagans. St. Paul made that very strong point that there is no distinction now among the Christians, really, in terms of the faith and their following of Christ between the Jews and the pagan converts. He does say one thing. He said, first the Jew and then the Gentile. Now, maybe that's the order in which historically the conversions happened, 
but I don't think he was saying that the Jewish uh, converts to Christianity took precedence over the pagan converts who were somehow more Christian than the pagan converts. So, no, there definitely should not be a kind of caste system within Catholicism with the conversion of the Jews. Not at all. Okay. Good. Well, Father, perhaps we can uh, spend the last part of the program uh, touching on some of these other topics that we wanted to get to. Um, we had an article from the same blog site that you mentioned early, earlier. Um, I believe this actually just came out today uh, where Archbishop Vigano called for an official investigation on the uh, conclave that elected Francis the Novus Ordo Papacy in 2013. Um, he said that there are certain irregularities uh, that, that happened in this conclave and that there needs to be an official investigation into some of the, these frauds, also into the abdication of Benedict XVI and that, that whole matter. Um, but what, what prompted that comment, Father, was uh, apparently a memorandum was, um, was uh, dissimulated among the members of the Sacred College uh, of Cardinals, and it listed some of the just general disasters of the uh, papacy of Francis, and uh, I guess just kind of questioning the, the legitimacy of the papacy in general. Uh, so what, what did, uh, you read through this article, Father, what was your uh, reaction to this, to these comments? Archbishop Vigano, memorandum. <clears throat> well, someone sent me this uh, statement by Archbishop Vigano, a very, as you say, topical, I think it just appeared in the last 24 hours, perhaps. Um, they actually referred me to the Non Veni Pacem, the Splendor of Truth website, uh, which reproduced this uh, memorandum. It circulated among the members of the Sacred College. They're talking about the, uh, you know, the Curia, basically, and uh, of the, uh, the Novus Ordo Curia. And that it actually, that this statement actually came from, originated from the blog of Aldo Maria Valley. Aldo Maria Valley, friend, <clears throat> journalist and friend of Carlo Maria Vigano, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano. In fact, <clears throat> it was through the website of this same Aldo Maria Valley <clears throat> that Archbishop Vigano originally published his statement that catapulted him into the limelight and precipitated his disappearing from the public scene for fear of his life, that his life would be taken. <clears throat> when he pointed out and announced to the world that Francis knew very well the evils that were being perpetrated by the homosexual mafia in the church, notably by this Cardinal McCarrick, that Francis was well aware of it. And Cardinal Vigano, uh, Archbishop Vigano said he had personally delivered to Francis the files of information about McCarrick, which Francis denies ever seeing. <clears throat> so, um, of course, um, so the name Aldo Maria Valli should be almost as familiar to people who know of uh, Archbishop Vigano as Vigano himself. And uh, so the fact that this statement by uh, Archbishop Vigano appears on Valli's website in Italian is not surprising at all. In fact, that's kind of an indication that it's authentic, because Valli would know. You know, but really originated with uh, Colonel uh, Archbishop Vigano. But the thrust of Archbishop of Vigano's statement is the election of Francis must be investigated because it is suspect. There are so many circumstances. Uh, I mean, we could break it down to say before, during, and after, right? Um, I mean, sort of like the, the same way you'd look at Vatican II. You'd say, okay, assess the value of Vatican II. Uh, look at the, uh, the plans of those who are preparing for Vatican II. Look at what actually happened at Vatican II. And look at the aftermath of Vatican II. And you have three solid arguments for showing that it was not the work of the Holy Ghost. You can have the same arguments for the new Mass. You say, you look at the new Mass... Look at all of the statements of those who were planning and preparing for the new Mass, what they were going to do. Look at what they actually did. Look at the new Mass itself and all of its theological anomalies. 
and then look at the consequences of it and how damaging it was to the church. And those are three powerful arguments. Well, basically, I think Archbishop Vigano is kind of being moved by the same pro thought process. Look at all of this plotting that was going on, you know, uh, in the underground here. By the, I don't know if he mentions the, uh, the St. Gallen Mafia or not. But look at all of that that led up to it. Look what happened at the election itself, and look at the aftermath. He's, and I guess he's laying pretty good stress on the aftermath. Uh, all that uh, Bergoglio's um, modernist, I, I, if, let's face it, he, he's the Pope of the New Order, right? His, what, what his New Order papacy has done to the true faith and to the true church. And he's making the argument that this is highly suspect and must be investigated. He even says that if it is found to be uh, questionable, it has to be denounced, it has to be renounced, and all that uh, Bergoglio did, did must be rejected, that it did not come from the true Pope. It's very interesting because you have people who for years have been blasting away and denouncing uh, not just... Um, <clears throat> Uh, angrily, but even cruelly, viciously, those whom they condemned as sedivacantes because they didn't accept Francis as a true pope. And now they are even more dogmatic. They're, they're trying to, many of the, the Benevacantes, as they, they might have kind of styled themselves, I guess, um, um, don't allow much room for doubt. They're very dogmatic about this. Francis is not the Pope. Francis was never the Pope. Francis could never have been the Pope because Benedict is still a Pope. That's what they're saying. And so they've gone from uh, just ridiculing um, endlessly uh, the Sede Vicantis um, to kind of almost, I don't know, it's a 180-degree turn, a 270-degree turn, or what it is. But now they're even more adamant that Francis is not the Pope and never was. But that Benedict still is. And, uh, you know, Benedict, of course, is a Novus Ordo Pope, too, you know. What they intend to gain by that, I don't know. I think what they're trying to do is somehow erase the papacy from their minds, the, the papacy of, of Francis, because they can't explain it in any way in Catholic terms how this is possible, that a man like Francis could be a true pope, doing what he does, saying what he does, believing what he does and not believing what he doesn't. You know, how could he be the true Pope? Uh, so this is a way they have to kind of salvage the situation in their minds by uh, basically erasing him. And so he never happened. There are no cardinals that uh, were made by him. You know what this is actually setting up? Now this is actually setting up a schism <clears throat> between the the Novus Ordo Catholics who believe that Francis really is a Pope because they really believe that Benedict resigned. And on the other hand, the Novus Ordo Catholics who don't believe Benedict resigned and therefore Francis never was the Pope. So when the time comes that either one of them dies, then uh, either Francis or, uh, or Benedict, they're going to have a real quandary as to what are they going to do? I mean, what are the Benedictines going to do? Get all, try to get all of his cardinals together to elect another pontiff for the Novus, their Novus Ordo, uh, whereas the rest of them are going to stay with Francis. Or if Francis dies, are you know the cardinals going to get together? Some of his cardinals going to get together and elect somebody to succeed him, but the Bergoglio, the 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 Benedictine followers are not going to accept that, and they're going to want the cardinals before Francis to get together and elect a pope for them. And on the top of that, I mean, you got the question of what are these cardinals saying? I mean, well, you can imagine what the cardinals who were named by Francis would say. Okay. The cardinals whom Francis named during his tenure as the Pope of the Novus Ordo are obviously going to say, no, you know, we adhere to Francis. But what about the cardinals who preceded Francis? They're also popes, cardinals of the Novus of the New Order. And uh, many of them are those who voted for Francis already to begin with. 
and they're responsible for putting Francis where he is right now. So how many of the cardinals, uh, again, they're all Novus Ordo, going back through, you know, Vatican II and all the rest. Um, how many of them are left when you subtract the number of, of, of quote-unquote cardinals named by Francis? And how many are left after you subtract the number of those who were cardinals before Francis, but who elected him? What have you got left there? I don't know. Has anybody taken a survey as to who actually is going to go along with this? Because they have to find some pre-Francis cardinals who actually still support Benedict as the pontiff. So they're, they're really wreaking havoc through all of this. But at the same time, I mean, one could understand why an Archbishop Vigano would say we have to investigate this election because it is just... It is it is outrageously suspicious, you know. We just can't let this go. Now, if only people would talk about presidential elections the same way, <clears throat> saying, look, this, this is just too suspicious here. We can't let this pass, right? Look at the consequences of letting a, a fake election take place and elect a fake, <clears throat> a fake uh, president, even of the United States of America. How could this be possible? Imagine if that were to happen here. That's, that, you know, you'd have a fake election giving a fake president. That would be devastating, you know? So we as Americans can understand why someone like Cardinal, uh, like Archbishop Vigano would say, that we can't just let this pass and, and kind of sweep it under the rug here. This is something that has to be, has to be faced and has to be faced now. <clears throat> so, in any way, um, you know, Archbishop Vigano has come a long way in his rejection of much of the work of the Novus Ordo, much of the work of the modernists. But obviously, you know, he's still clinging to some other apparatus here. Um, but he, like so many others, is horrified by the prospect of um, uh, Francis Bergoglio being a true Roman pontiff when, in the face of everything that he's done and everything he said, which is so antithetical to what a true Roman pontiff is and what a true Roman pontiff does. So one can readily understand why he would seriously question the legitimacy of that election and would call for an investigation, especially when those responsible for the election of Bergoglio were crowing from the rooftops how they finally succeeded in getting the Pope of their choice, Bergoglio. They finally succeeded they were congratulating themselves on this whole thing. And, um, you know, the church had made it very clear, you can't elect a pope by chicanery. <laughs> right? uh, this is not like a worldly election here. So, uh, anyway, we'll see what comes of it. It's very interesting, though, that of all people, Archbishop Vigano now has thrown a certain... <clears throat> Uh, weight and therefore credibility behind this whole movement among the conservative Novus Ordos who want to say, no, I mean, this is even far beyond anything that the SSPX is saying, because the SSPX, the Society of Death, is going to Rome and wants to visit with Francis, wants to find some kind of working relationship with Francis. And here's Archbishop Vigano quite calling into question whether he's, he's even the Pope and saying that there's a you know, likelihood that he is not and never was. So how is that going to play out now? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know that uh, the superior general of the Society of St. Pius X says that he was in Rome not long ago, uh, maybe a few months ago, and was visiting a, a, an ecclesiastic there who knows Francis. And so at one point, the ecclesiastical friend said, well, let's go see Francis. So sure enough, they just go in and visit with Francis, spend a half an hour with Francis. Uh, I think uh, Father Pagliarani just came out with a statement about that. Uh, they met for half an hour. They shared stories about Argentina. You know, they had this common experience in Argentina. And it was very cordial and friendly. And he said he wanted to stress to Francis uh, that the Society of St. Pius X exists to serve the Church, and that's all they were concerned about, it's just being of service to the Church. Now, 
if I had a half an hour with Francis, and I think if you had a half an hour with Francis, I think we have a somewhat different message, right? <laughs> so rather than just kind of sharing stories about our rep, our reminiscences of Buenos Aires, and um, we just want to be of service, you know, I think we would probably um, be beseeching him to repent and um, to save his soul, you know, to stress the danger he was in and the damage he was doing. Uh, so, in any case, but that's the account of this visit, this impromptu visit uh, that Father Pagliarani had. So, how does that in any way jive with what uh, Bishop Vigano is, is warning about here and what he's calling for? It's, it's uh, very interesting. By the way, you know, Tom, I mentioned uh, American uh, elections here and just the, the very concept of having a fake election and, uh, you know, this, uh, this his history of America that would follow from it and how devastating it would be. We're looking at uh, a, a, a nominee to the Supreme Court of the United States by, uh, by President Biden. He's actually named this woman and he made no bones about it. He named her because she's a woman and she's a black woman. That's why he chose her. He himself said so. Of course, now, of course, she is denying that. Others are denying that. But that's exactly what President Biden said. Well, the fact that they're contradicting him now is tantamount to them saying he doesn't know what he's talking about. He says that he was choosing for that reason, but that's not true. He really didn't. As though they don't believe you know the expression, the emperor has no clothes? Well, in this case, what they're saying basically is the emperor has no brain. Because, yeah, that's what he said, but no, that, that, that didn't, that's not true, you know. Um, but the fact is, uh, that's what he said. He chose her because she's a black woman. She's a very radical leftist. And recently, she came out and made this statement in writing, actually. Uh, Senator Cruz presented a, a number of questions in writing. And not only uh, in, verbally, <clears throat> she was questioned by, I think, uh, Blackburn. She could not define what a woman is, right? She said, I don't know, I'm not a biologist. She doesn't know what a woman is. So I guess the following question would have been, well, are you a woman? And if you are, why are you a woman? What makes you a woman? Why do you think you're a woman? But I don't know that anybody asked her that. But what I consider even more alarming is what she said in writing in answer to uh, Senator Cruz's words. She said, I do not hold a position on whether individuals possess natural rights. Now think about that. I do not hold a position on whether individuals possess natural rights. This is a person who's nominated by... President Biden, to be a justice of the Supreme Court for the rest of her life. And she doesn't hold a position as to whether individuals, I guess she means us, have natural rights. She doesn't believe in the Constitution, which she's supposed to swear an oath to uphold. Doesn't believe in the Bill of Rights. <clears throat> doesn't believe in the Declaration of Independence. She doesn't believe anything. Right? She can't even tell you what a woman is, let alone, if there is a woman, that she has any natural rights. This is insanity. This is insanity, which is a very deadly, lethal insanity. And on top of that, we get this great Republican voice, uh, Mitch Romney, approving of this, saying that she's a great woman, you know, and all the rest. You know, um, this is deadly stuff. This is the type of thing that kills uh, not just people, but nations, you know, destroys nations. Um, so I'm actually, and I'm sure you are appalled, just appalled. And uh, we, see, we see this happening to our own country here. So bottom line, we've got to, we've got to pray. We've got to pray very, very hard to Almighty God, because at this point, uh, it's going to take some, uh, some very 
um, powerful graces from Almighty God to uh, move minds and hearts now to um, uh, resist, to withstand this, to, to turn this around. Um, there is a division going on now. I think people are genuinely frightened when they see the abyss at their feet, sort of like the children at Fatima when Our Lady opened up the ground and they saw into hell. I get the impression from talking to people that there are people now who are like me, like those children as they saw this at their feet and they realized, oh my goodness, it's what does it come to? You know, what's the next step? Well, right in front of them, right? This is the next step. And I think there are people being recalled from their stupor of sensuality and and their smug you know, pride and arrogance. I think people are being recalled from that. And I can't help but think that this is God's grace moving them then because God wants to save them. And the way they were going, they would just slip quietly into hell. God wants to save them. And one way to do that is by, um, you know, stirring them out of this, uh, this uh, you know, sinful stupor they're in and uh, make them, you know, take God seriously and, and to induce a little fear of the Lord in them. But uh, for others, it seems that they're intoxicated with their success and the defiance of God. And uh, they're just literally hell-bent on, uh, on uh, destroying, you know, the, the whole moral order of God in the world, uh, basically, essentially creating hell on earth. You know? The leftists, that's what they stand for, the modernists, that's where they're going. So uh, Our Lady has told us from heaven that we need to stop sinning, make reparation for the sins that are happening now, and uh, we need to pray pray to Almighty God. One thing that she started out with, <clears throat> she says, to save poor sinners. She said this after showing the children the vision of hell. She said to the children, you have seen hell where poor sinners go. <clears throat> to save them, <clears throat> God wants to establish on earth devotion to my immaculate heart. That's what she said. Right? So that's how key devotion to the Blessed Mother's Immaculate Heart is in all of this. That's the key. Um, and so we need to devote ourselves to that, consecrate ourselves to that Immaculate Heart of Mary. And we need to promote, as Father Gary Goodegrange says, we need to enable people to understand the significance of it and to encourage them to do that. That should be kind of a relentless message of ours. That and the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the two things. The kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ is the only hope for human society. It's the only hope for the individual soul to recognize the absolute sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus Christ over each individual, but over all human societies. And together with that, we have to urge the, the devotion to the Immaculate Heart, beginning with a consecration of each and every single soul to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Um, this has got to be the message, and it's got to be a relentless, ceaseless message that we get. In, in no uncertain terms, we have to get this point across. So, in any case, um, I'll turn the floor over to you to try to uh, rescue us from... <laughs> <laughs> well, Father, thank you for everything tonight. Thanks for your insight there and your words of wisdom. I appreciate it. And well, Tom, thank you. See you again next week. And thank our Lord and our Blessed Mother. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.